that the son that he thought had been dead for 22 years is, uh, is alive. Now, Jacob at this point is 130 years old. Remember, people back in uh, those days lived a little longer than they do today. So he's at the good ripe old age of 130. And, and when he hears that your long-lost son, the son that you thought was dead, is alive, immediately seeing that boy becomes his focus, right? Uh, if you look at the, the, one of the things last week that he says, he says, Joseph, my son, is still alive. I have to see him uh, before I die. And so at, at this point, his emotions are driving him. You know, last week in our, in our sermon, we talked about feelings. And, and at this point, his emotions are... And this is... I mean, we would all completely understand this, right? You've heard that your son's been dead for 22 years, is alive. Your first thought is, I got to go see him. And there's really probably nothing is going to stop you from getting to that boy and, uh, and seeing him. After all, remember, he, he only, he's, he's actually spent more time away from Joseph, 22 years, than he spent with him. Uh, because he, he was lost when he was 17. So, so again, he, everything in him is saying, i got to go see this boy. So jo- Joseph, of course, has invited Jacob and his family to move everything they've got to Egypt, uh, where he'll take care of them. And so Jacob says, all right, let's go. Packs his belonging, his animals, the flocks, the, the kids, the grandkids, the great-grandkids, whatever they got. They pack them all up into an old Wild West, Old West caravan, and, and, they, and they head out. Now, let's look at verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now, let's stop right there. Whether it's the first night of the trip or the second night of the trip, we're, we're not sure, but very shortly after he leaves uh, where he lives, uh, he comes to Beersheba, because it, it wouldn't have been very far from where he was. And when he gets there, Jacob stops. Now, the question is, why would he stop? Why would he stop at that place and offer uh, sacrifices? Well, there's a couple things. It, it almost seems that when he gets to Beersheba, he, he maybe has second thoughts. Of course he wants to see uh, Jacob, but there's something about this place that makes him stop and think about what he's doing. Now, why would Beersheba do that? Okay. Well, keep in mind, and again, this is going back in our study, but Beersheba had a, a lot of historical significance for his, uh, his family. You remember, if you go all the way back to chapters 21 and, and 22, uh, Beersheba is the first place that Abraham called on the name of the Lord. When Abraham went to Mount Moriah, to sacrifice Isaac, it was to Beersheba that he returned and, uh, and, and came back to. Uh, Isaac himself, Jacob's father, had been visited there uh, by God when God reiterated his covenant with Abraham. That was in chapter 26. And by the way, it was from Beersheba that Jacob left to go to Haran when he, when he kept going up to meet his uncle Laban and married Rachel and Leah. It was from Beersheba that he... He left, so his family has great ties to this to this place. And so, when you come there, and we all can understand that, right? If you ever go back to a, a place you grew up or a place that's got a lot of memories, just driving into that town or coming to that place immediately evokes all these memories, right? 
So it would be perfectly natural that when he comes to Beersheba, immediately he thinks about God's promises to Abraham and God's promises to Isaac and, and God's... Pro- I mean, it, it, that would just be perfectly understandable and, and natural. I mean, can you imagine, here he is, 130 years old, he comes back to a place and, and it's a hot day and he sits down under the very tamarisk tree that Abraham had planted. That'd be pretty cool. I, I was, when I was reading this, I was reminded of uh, years ago going to uh, Mount Vernon. For those of you who have ever been to Mount Vernon, which is George Washington's place, uh, when, you, when you walk down the, I wouldn't call it a driveway, it's like a football field thing out in front of Mount Vernon, and it, it's lined with these huge sycamore trees on both sides of it. And you, and, and, and you go up there and there's a plaque and you read it, George Washington planted those sycamore trees with his own hand which is kind of weird, right? So you're looking at a tree that he planted. Well, Jacob would be sitting under a tamarisk tree that his grandfather Abraham had planted. He might go over and and get a drink of water out of the well that his father Isaac had dug. So this this place is just rife with these memories and and both, uh, you know, not just memories in his head, but, but even physical things that remind him of the covenant that God has made. So... I think what may have happened, and this obviously would just be conjecture, but I think what would happen is you come to some place like that and you think you're fixing to leave the land and you're thinking, now, is this the right thing to do? This is the land that God promised to my family, Abraham and Isaac. Yes, he wants to see Joseph. He wants to see him desperately. But yet he seems to have second thoughts about, about leaving. Keep in mind also that Beersheba is at the very southern end of Canaan. Um, in Judges chapter 20, when they call the people uh, out, they say from Dan, which is up in the north, to Beersheba, which is in the south. So that was kind of the northern extreme. So Beersheba is at the very southern extreme of the, of the promised land. So once you live, leave Beersheba, you're leaving the promised land. So think about it. Not only does this place have all this, this historical significance to your family, at the same time, it's, there's like a sign sitting there that says, hey... Once you leave this land, you're leaving the promised land. Not a, not a real sign, but a proverbial sign. So he knows, okay, I'm, when I leave here... So, I mean, he's got to be thinking all these things. Man, God promised me this land. Am I doing the right thing? Do you remember years ago, there was a... It, it's crazy how these things happened in the Bible. But you remember Abraham, there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went to Egypt. And he ended up having to lie to Abimelech about Sarah. Y'all remember all that? Man, that? That didn't turn out so good. That was a mess. Years later, Isaac, Jacob's father, there's another famine in the land. And Isaac starts thinking, well, maybe I need to go down to Egypt. And in chapter 26, watch what God says. The Lord appeared to him. This is Jacob's father. The Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I tell you. Stay in this land and I will be with you and bless you. So his own father thinks about going to Egypt, right? And God says, don't do that. I promised you this land. You stay in this land. So wouldn't it be completely understandable that Jacob would say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Am I doing the right thing? Because God's promises never said anything about Egypt. God's promise had promised Canaan, the promised land. So he's got to be in his mind as he gets to this place that's got all this historical significance. It's the very southern end of the land. Once you leave this place, you're, you're out of Canaan. He's got to be thinking, is this a mistake? Am I stepping out of God's will if I was to go into Egypt? Now, to his credit, 
Because we've, we've kind of, over the past few weeks and months, we've kind of bashed Jacob a little bit, and he had a lot of it coming. Um, he, he's he, not the most godly man, but in this case, he absolutely does the right thing. He stops and he asks for directions. And there's a really good lesson for, there for us. Sometimes you need to put a break on your emotions and seek God's will. Sometimes your emotions and your feelings are driving you to do something. It may not be the, might be the right thing. It might not be the right thing. You need to go to God regardless. And Jacob does that, which is, again, a good lesson for all of us. Look at verses 2 through 4. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night, and he said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Okay, so evidently he was. God says, don't be afraid, because there was some... He wasn't sure if this was the right thing. God comes to him and says, don't be afraid. Go on down there, because it's there that I'm going to make you into a great nation. I myself will go with you, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, so God says, okay, Jacob, you did the right thing, and don't be afraid. You know, don't, don't have any anxiety about what you're doing. This is my will. This is my plan. So Jacob gets up the next morning and the fear is gone. He knows that God is with him. And armed with this knowledge, they set out. Verses 5 through 7. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan. And they came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons, his sons' sons, his daughters, his sons' daughters, every great grandkid, everything they could find. They just gathered them all up, and he brought them all down, the goats, the sheep, the, the oxen, everything he had. He brings them all down to Egypt. Now, at this point, the, 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 it kind of stops, and Moses, remember Moses is writing Genesis, Okay. Moses feels like, okay, I need to give a, a genealogy. Now, we all have pretty much agreed in our study that we don't like genealogies, right? We, people have said that, you know, what are we going to do in this chapter because it's a genealogy. But we've learned, hopefully, we've all learned that genealogies are important. Okay, there's a reason they do them. We might not understand the reason, but there's a reason that Moses takes time out to include a genealogy. So we're going to read through it as quickly as I can, and then we'll come back and I'll tell you the reason why he does it. Verses 8 through 27. Now, remember, before we read the genealogy, Jacob had four wives, okay? He only wanted one, (laughs) but he got tricked into two, and then the Battle of the Brides broke out. Next thing he knows, he's got four and, and... and uh, he, he's, anyway, we won't talk about how miserable he was. But anyway, um, but he's got four. He's got Rachel, he's got Leah, he's got, the, and the two maids, Bilhah and Zilpah. So he's gonna, they're going to list the sons by this. Now, these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon. Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakir, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. And you'll remember from our study, Ur and Onan, uh, the Lord killed them in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yab, and Shimron. 
the sons of Zebulon, Sered, Elon, and Jalil. These are the sons of Leah, who she bore to Jacob and Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters uh, numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Aradi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laman gave to Leah his daughter, it was her maid, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Betcher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppin, Huppin, and Ard. Don't name your kids Muppin and Huppin. I'm, I'm just giving you a piece of advice right now. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 people in all, the sons of Dan, Husham, the sons of Naphtali, Jaleel, Guni, Jezer, and Shillam. These are the sons of Bilhah, who Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 people in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him, and Egypt were two. So all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So you got 66 plus uh, Jacob himself makes 67 plus Joseph makes 68 and the two sons of Joseph who were already in Egypt make uh, 70. Now, again, we need to remember that to us, this really don't mean a lot, right? We, you know, we, we, we find these names kind of funny and, and, but there's not a whole lot here to us. But to the Israelites, remember, We've got to go back to this. Moses is writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's writing that during the Exodus, after they've left Egypt and before they enter into the Promised Land. He's writing down the history of all of this stuff that's happened for the people who are going to carry on once they get to the Promised Land. What he's doing here is he's listing every tribe and every major family group within the tribe that would later form the nation of, of Israel. You see, when you get to the promised land, everything will be divided up based on tribes. We, we divide up the United States based on uh, states. Um, uh, other, other, you know, countries divide it up maybe based on regions or we buy, divide it up based on whatever. But they were divided based on tribes. By the way, if you go to places like maybe Afghanistan and some of these uh, third world countries today, there, you would still go into a, we hear them talk about what? Tribal regions. They're still in those places, still broken up by tribes. Well, that's exactly what the nation of Israel. And, and not only did they divide it up, okay, Dan, you live here. Asher, you live over here. Benjamin, you're going to live over here. Not only did they do that, the, what they actually were responsible for was based on tribes. So the army was organized based on tribes. The, uh, the division of labor, uh, the tribe of Levi was the, the tribe of priests. Even the coming of the Messiah was designated based on a certain tribe, the tribe of Judah. So everything was about your family. It was about your tribe. Who did you uh, belong to? So these boring lists, which are boring to us, meant something to those first readers because this was all about family. And their identity was tied up in their family. If you met a man, the first thing you'd say, what tribe are you? We, don't, we wouldn't say, what do you do? 
See, we've moved from being identified with family to being identified based on what we do. They were identified all based on family. Who do you belong to? What tribe do you belong to? Now, let me say this. Moses, his intent is not to name every person that went into Egypt. Because if you go read this list, some of these people didn't actually exist yet. His intent is to name everybody that came out. It doesn't really matter who goes in, it's who comes out that's important. That, by the way, explains one of the problems if you see in this list. For example, Benjamin, if you go back and look at that list, Benjamin is listed as having ten children. Well, Benjamin's only in his 20s. Okay, he's not having ten children already. That Moses, see, in the Hebrew thought, and again, this is very, we don't understand this, but when they thought if a child was in somebody's loins, they could go ahead and list them. In other words, if you were in a man's loins and you were going to come out while you're in Egypt, they'd go ahead and, does that make sense? That's just the way they thought. They did, we, you know, we would say, well, they weren't physically on the wagon. You can't put them. No, that's not the way they, from a Hebrew perspective, there were 70 people that went in, even though some of them weren't actually, uh, actually born yet to Moses' way of thinking. So the very fact that they were in their father's loins meant they could go ahead and be listed. And so what he's doing again, he's listing the men who eventually come out of Egypt and be the tribal leaders and, and that kind of thing. He's not so much concerned that they actually exist at that, uh, at that present time. Now, let's talk a little bit and stop here on this genealogy and talk a little bit about family. Listen, our identity, one of the things that really interests me with people is how we all have an identity. I mean, it's almost like it's natural for us to, to have identities. Does that make sense? Um, I, I'll see some, well, I don't want to go down that road right now, but here's the thing. That our identity should first and foremost be as Christians. Our identity should be in Christ. My identity shouldn't be first and foremost as a man or as a woman. First and foremost, that's why Paul said there's neither male nor female nor Jew nor Greek. It shouldn't be my race. It shouldn't be my sexuality. It shouldn't be anything like that. It should be Jesus. That's my identity. I am a Christian, a Christ follower, first and foremost. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. I don't live anymore. This is not me. This is Christ living in me. That should be my identity. I got a real problem with people who say they're Christians, but they take some other aspect of their life, their, their gender, their, their sexuality, their uh, whatever, and they move that in front. They move that in front of Jesus. And that becomes their identity. But we've all got something we identify with. And I think that's natural. And I think that's why I love this scripture, because I think Christ gave us the identity. Here, I'm your identity. I'm, I should be everything to, to you. Now, but just as the Hebrew identity was closely aligned with tribe and family, I don't think that's wrong. I think God instituted that. He, he wanted your identity to be inside of your family. You see, one of the weaknesses I think we have as American Christians is we've lost identity with family, specifically the family of God. You see, we have a very individualistic approach. Think about our churches, right? For the most part, our churches are, are full of people that come, but their Christianity is very personal to them. 
okay? And, and obviously, we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and nothing. I'm not saying anything's wrong with all that, but we've lost this sense of belonging to something bigger than our, ourselves. I, I dare say, we don't study church history. You go back in the Old Testament, and, and they were constantly told, this is what happened in the past. You, they were trying to create a connection to the people that have come before you, your fathers and your forefathers and the people that have blazed the trail. We don't even... We don't even study church history anymore. It's almost like we've isolated out. You know, it's just what really matters is not what happened before, but what happens now. Uh, so we don't have any kind of sense of continuity to the things that's gone before us. People come and go in churches all the time. They just join a church and they leave because they like something, they don't like something, and th- there's no connection. Are, are you with me? There's no connection to the church family. A lot of people a- attend a church for years and they don't even know people. They, they don't really even know. They, they never step out to, to attend a life group or attend a fellowship or, or, or try to get to know people. There's no relationships. And we make decisions, and, and I've got a decision. We never even think, well, how would this affect the family of God? It never even comes into, into, into play. But see, the, the New Testament is not like that. The New Testament comes back over and over again, this is your family. Isn't it? We're called the family of God. We are adopted into the family of God. Ephesians 2, Paul says this, you are no longer strangers strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He's saying just like in the Old Testament, you belong to a, a special people now. Not only as fellow citizens, but as fellow members of the household of God. Galatians 6.10 says this, As we have opportunity, do good to everyone, but especially those in your family, the household of faith. 1 Corinthians 12.26, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. But I think in America, we've, we've lost a lot of this. Um, we don't, it's not that connection to the family of God the way that I think God wants us to have. Listen, when jo- you'll see this in a minute. When Joseph and, and uh, Jacob are reunited, Jacob is going to say this to his son. He says, now let me die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. In other words, he's going to say, in seeing you, I'm ready to die. I- I've experienced all life has to, to, to offer. I, I can die now a, a happy man. Listen, real joy in life comes through relationships, not where you live. Not what kind of house it is, not what kind of car you drive, not what kind of toys you have, but it comes through relationships. That's purpose, that's meaning, that's where you find real joy. And God has given us family, both natural and church family, as the place that we can nurture those relationships. Listen, I, I love my natural family. I'm, I'm, I've, I've got a great family. But I've also got a second family, which is the family of God. And I've got people in this family of God that are, that are just as close to me as my, as my natural family. I think that's what God wants. He doesn't want, you know, people just, hey, I'm over here and you're over there. No, He wants us together. He wants us to see each other as, as family. And so we need to think about that. I don't think God said, you know, in the Old Testament, family was a good thing. But when I get to the New Testament, eh, you don't really need it. No. He just said, I've gone from the family of the nation of Israel. Now we're talking about the family of the one true God. Okay, let's go to the next section, which is Goshen. Verse 28. 
So he, talking about Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. So they're on their way, and he says, Judah, I want you to go, and I want you to go get directions from Joseph, and then you come back and lead us into the land of Goshen, because they don't know where this place is, so they have to get directions. So Judah does that, and he comes back, and he leads his family into the land of Goshen. Verse 29 and 30. Then Joseph prepared his chariot, and he went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, and he fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, and I know that you are still alive. And that's all it says. Twenty-two years they've been apart. Twenty-two years he thought his son was dead, and they come back together, and that's kind of just it. But, but you know... Can't we say words, you couldn't say enough about something like that, right? That's kind of why I like that. Just leave it simple. Don't go into, how do you even explain the emotions and things like that? Uh, just, just, Just let it be what it is. So Jacob says, I'm ready to die. But now, by the way, he won't die until he's 147. So he's got 17 good years uh, to spend, probably 17 of the best years of his life that he'll get to spend there uh, in Egypt. Verse 31 to 34. So Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I'm going to go up and tell Pharaoh, and I'm going to say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and everything they have. And when Pharaoh asks you, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers. In order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, I want you to see what Joseph said. When Pharaoh asks you what you do, tell him you're a shepherd because Egyptians hate shepherds. In other words, I want you to be something that the Egyptians will detest and despise and hate. That's what I want you to do. Now, why, why in the world would he do that? Well, I want you to remember Joseph is a smart guy. Have we agreed on that yet? He's a smart guy. He's also a very capable guy. He is, he's run the land of Egypt for the past seven years. Uh, he's basically saved untold amount of lives with his, uh, the things that he's done. He's not about to become careless. There's a reason why he does what he does. It, when it comes to taking care of his own family, he's going to take care of them. Okay? So he's going out of his way to make sure they're taken care of. So when he says, say that, he's not, he's not being careless. He's not being dumb. He's got a plan in place. So remember that Pharaoh had promised uh, Joseph, I'll give your family the best of the land of Egypt. Now, ba- Joseph wants to make sure that this actually happens. So I want you to notice the first thing he does is he sends his family to Goshen before they ever meet Pharaoh. It's kind of possession is nine-tenths of the law, right? So he says, okay, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and send you there. Go ahead and get settled just in case he changes. You know what I'm saying? It makes it harder to move you. Don't just come to the palace and then let him make a decision. Go ahead and go there. So that's the first thing he does that's, that's a pretty smart. Now, we keep hearing about this land of Goshen, land of Goshen, land of Goshen. What, what's so important uh, about this land? Why did Joseph want them there? Well, first of all, it is some of the best land in Egypt. If you go out and Google land of Goshen today in Egypt, it's, a very, it's in the northern part of Egypt up along the coast. It's very fertile. Uh, they still get a lot of their crops and, and agriculture is grown there today. So it was a very, very good 
uh, piece of land. By the way, which is exactly uh, in the last chapter what Pharaoh had promised. He said, I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. So land of Goshen was the best of the land of Egypt. Secondly, it was located very near to Joseph. I don't know where Joseph was, whether he was in uh, Cairo or Alexandria or whatever the capital city was at that time, but it was very near. Last chapter, Genesis 45.10, Joseph said, You will live in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. So it was close enough to him so that he could see him as, you know, he wouldn't have to make a long journey to go up and, uh, and see them. But the third reason is by far the most important reason. See, dwelling in Goshen would keep his family isolated from the rest of Egypt. And the very fact that they were there as shepherds, and they, they detested shepherds, would keep them insulated from the Egyptians and their culture and their sophistication and all the other things that they, that they had. You see, Joseph's been living there now for 22 years. He's lived, but he's, he's strong enough to do it. This is a, if we haven't seen anything about Joseph, he is a godly man. He is a mature godly man. He's strong enough to handle it. He's strong enough to not only live amongst the Egyptians, to be married to an Egyptian woman, to speak the Egyptian language, and still remain a godly man. He could handle it, but his brothers, I don't think so. I don't think they'd be able to handle that. And, and can you imagine if he would just brought that family right into the capital city and they all got different houses and they just started living? What would have happened to the nation of Israel? They would have just, I mean, they would have just been engulfed by false gods and the Egyptian culture and all that. So what he wants them is he wants them isolated. He wants them insulated up there in the land of Goshen. That's why he told his brothers, say you're a shepherd. Because not only will he put you in the land of Goshen and leave you there, but he'll, uh, all the other Egyptians are not going to want to have anything to do with you. So you get to live in this nice piece of land. You're very safe. You're provided for. And you don't get uh, inundated with the culture of the Egyptians. And so it would maintain their identity as the people of God. Now let's very quickly turn to Genesis 47. We've got about 12 verses I want to read. So Joseph went in, verses 1 through 6. And he told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and he presented them to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to them, What do you do? Just exactly like Joseph knew he was. And and they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. In other words, we're shepherds and that's all we know how to do. We ain't never done anything else. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able man among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So, Exactly what Joseph knew would happen is exactly what happened. He asked them what they do. They said they're shepherds, stay in the land of Goshen. Everything worked out just the way Joseph uh, had planned it to do. Again, they stress the fact that they're shepherds, and they're given the land of Goshen by Pharaoh because he said, well, I don't want anything to do with shepherds. I mean, he's nice to Joseph, right? Hey, yeah, take care of him. But he also thinks, let's get these guys over here so we don't have to, to deal with them too much. It was exactly what he wanted. Now... 
We turn now to a surprising, what I call a surprising appraisal. I want you to look at verses 7 through 12. Then Joseph brings his father in. Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and he stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many of the days of your life? In other words, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of my sojourning, or the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. And then he says this about his life. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and he went out from the presence of Pharaoh, and Joseph settled his father and his brothers, and he gave him possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. So, he asked Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob says, I'm 130 and my life has just been terrible, right? I mean, he just says, my life's been terrible. It's been full of evil, been full of misery. In short, in essence, he says it's been a short life and it's been a sour life, okay? Now, I say that's a surprising appraisal. Well, why do I say that? Because, you know, when you give a test, if I'm Pharaoh and I want to come before Pharaoh and I want to say, okay, I'm going to stand there and I'm going to give him a good testimony of what God has done in my life. That wouldn't be it. Right? I mean, if somebody says, hey, tell us your testimony, and somebody gets up and takes the mic, well, my life's been pretty miserable, short and sour. We think, well, <laughs> that's, that's your testimony, right? But the fact is, what he said was absolutely true. You go back and look at his life and real quickly. In the, in, in the womb, right? He struggles with his brother. In the very womb, before he's born, they're, they're in there fighting each other in, in the womb. He, he grows up in a home where his mother and his father were divided in their love, right? His mother loved him, his father loved his brother. And, and he grew up, that's the kind of home he grew up in. No wonder he had problems. He, uh, he's alienated after he cheats his brother out of his birthright. He's alienated from his father and his mother. He's exiled uh, to a land. He spent years in exile. When he gets there in exile, he's got to deal with his uh, uh, kind of his cheating uncle Laban, right? He, he, he wants one wife. He ends up with four. All of his wives are fussing and fighting and competing with other all the time, right? Uh, his daughter, he finally gets out of that situation. He's coming home. He stops. His daughter's raped. Because of the rape, his, his, uh, his sons become murderers. They murder people that didn't even do anything. The, he, on the way back after that, the woman that the one wife that he really, really loves, she dies early and leaves the other ones alive, right? His oldest son goes in and sleeps with his stepmother. His favorite son is lost and presumed dead. And then finally, at the end of his life, he gets here and this famine hits, right? And he's got to think about it. He's got to uproot everything he has, everything he knows. And you know how old, and old people are connected to our things, right? We just get real comfortable as we get older, right? We won't, okay, just I don't even really want to cross the county line if I don't have to cross the county line. Yes? And he's got to travel hundreds of miles and spend the rest of his life. I mean, that, it, it, he's right. He's right. He's had a pretty miserable life. And when you read that list, I cannot help but contrast him with his son. Because his son had a pretty, if you looked at his life, he had a lot of things happen to him. But Joseph would have never called his life miserable. He would have never said that. You see, they both went through a, a lot of suffering. 
But other than that, their, their lives were completely different. By the way, Joseph's suffering was undeserved. Jacob's not so much. Pretty much everything he did, he, he, it was based on his decisions. Um, he made bad, bad, bad decisions over and over and over again. He really reaped what he sowed. Not so much for, for Joseph. Jacob, when he went through adversity, he couldn't see the hand of God. Remember that? He, he blamed it on his stupid sons. Why, do y'all, why are y'all so stupid, he'd say. Why, look what you've done to me. Joseph always saw the hand of God. And, and it seemed like in adversity, Jake, uh, Joseph grew closer to God, and Jacob seemed to grow further apart from Now, God never abandoned him. God had made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac, and he carried that on. But Jacob himself, not such a good guy, not such a godly guy. Okay? Now, what was the difference between them? I think it's three things. Their theology of God, their relationship with God, and their attitude toward life. You see, when I, we, we come in here on Sunday mornings and we study theology. That, that's what we're teaching. We're, the theology is the study of God. Everybody got that? Just like biology is the study of bio or whatever, um, right? Uh, theology is the study of God. Theos is, is God. So we come here to study about God, to learn what he's like, who he is, and what he wants, and what he, how does he think. And we're, That's what we're doing. And it matters. It matters that you know God correctly. There's a lot of people out there today thinking they worship God, but it ain't our God. It's a completely different God. And I think Joseph and Jacob, even though they both had a relationship with God... Joseph, much better than Jacob, knew who God was. He knew God was sovereign. He knew God was working things out. And so you combine good theology with a relationship, that says your attitude changes completely. Uh, Imagine if I said that I had a relationship with someone here, and uh, every time we talked, I talked to you, but I never listened. Imagine that for a moment. And so we'd have this relationship, and I, I'd see you every Sunday, and every time we'd talk, I'd just start talking about my problems and what's going on in my life, and, and you just sit there, and you listen to me, but I never listen to you. Now, would, could I say we have a relationship? Yeah. But do I know you? Do I know anything about you? Do I know what you feel or what you know? Because I never listen. When we walk in here on a Sunday morning, we're listening. This is what we're doing. We're listening. We're listening to God because he wrote all this down and says, this is who I am. This is how I think. This is what I feel. This is what my plans are. We're listening. We're learning about him. And so now that relationship is real. It's not just a one-sided thing where I jump down in prayer and tell him all my problems and what I want, and then I move on and I never listen. Good theology plus a relate. And by the way, if you have good, you can have really good theology. I had a I had a professor in college that knew this book better than I did, and he was as lost as anything I've ever... He had no relationship with God. What did Jesus say to the woman of the well? You want to worship me? You worship me in spirit and in truth. You've got to have a relationship, but you gotta have, it's got to be based on truth. It's got to be based on who I am. Theology and relationship. Truth and spirit. You walk that out, listen, you want to know how to live a productive, purposeful, joyful life? There it is, right there. That's Joseph. 
He knew who God was correctly. He had a relationship with him, and that changed his attitude. I think the biggest problem Jacob had is he had a relationship with God, but he didn't really know who God was. He didn't really understand how God thought and felt and worked. And that made, at the end of the day, he, he, he didn't have a good life. What he said was true. He did not have a, a good life. I want to say this, though, about Jacob. And, and I was thinking about this. He stands before Pharaoh. He confesses, oh, man, I, and, I, and I'm hoping he's sitting there thinking, you know what, I've, made a, I've done a lot of dumb things. And you, we went down that list. And some of them was out of his control, being brought up in the family he was, but he just he, he made his own mistakes in his own family. And I hope and I believe that he learned his lesson there at the end. And if he could learn his lesson, even though he's 130 and he's got 17 years to live, that could make the, that last chapter of his life the best part of his life. And I think the fact is he got a second chance. Now, whether he made the best of it or not, we'll, we'll see as we move ahead. But the fact is, I've had people come to me before and say, you know what, I didn't get saved till I was 65. I didn't get saved till I was 70. Why? Why did it? I don't know. I can't explain all that, but I know it's a second chance. I know that the best years of your life, the best part of your life, can be right here at the end. If you combine knowing who God is with a relationship with God, that changes everything. <coughs> Excuse me, I want to have a couple final thoughts. I've got a couple minutes. <coughs> As I look at this chapters, something jumped out at me this week. And how much of Genesis devoted to Jacob? Because I'm going to be honest with you. The more I look at Joseph, the, more I, less, the less I like Jacob. I mean, the more you look at Joseph, I'm going to tell you, Joseph, is, he was really unbelievable. He is a real godly man. And you look at his daddy and you think, man, that guy, he, he wasn't a nice guy. He wasn't a very godly guy. But when you look at the chapters that are devoted to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, it's surprising to me that Jacob gets more airtime than any of the others. Abraham had 14 chapters that spanned his life. Isaac had 15 that spanned his. Joseph's got 21 chapters, but Jacob has 26 chapters that span his life. Now, they're not all about him, of course, but, but yet his life span spanned over 26. By the way, that's over half the chapters in the book of Genesis. He's alive and, and, and doing things. Now, the other thing I can't understand do you know that of all those brothers and all those men that as God... I mean, I would pick Joseph as being the most godly, yet he never has a tribe named after him. All the other brothers, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, uh, Asher, Gad, Naphtali, uh, uh, his sons got him, but there's not a single tribe. We don't talk about the tribe of Joseph because there, there is no tribe named after him. You move on down the line and... And, and God says, okay, the priesthood is going to come out of Levi. Well, why not Joseph? Wouldn't that make more sense? <laughs> that as godly a man he was, God says, okay, I'm going to take the priesthood out of your... Didn't do that. And why doesn't the Messiah come from Joseph? Why does it come, have to come out of Judah? I got no answers to those questions. I can only ask them. The only thing I know is that God chooses to accomplish His purposes through people like Jacob and through people like me. You see, if Joseph, a lot, of, a lot of commentaries will say Joseph is a type of Christ. In other words, he's a Savior, right? He saves his... 
But if that's true, then let me tell you, Jacob is a type of pretty much every Christian. Because we got very few Josephs running around and a whole lot of Jacobs, right? I mean, I, I said it before. If I got to look at that and say, well, am I closer to Joseph or am I closer to Jacob? Ugh. That's a hard, I, you know, I don't want to just, but I am probably find myself closer to Jacob than I, I'm not near the man Joseph was. You see, the main lesson I've learned going through all these chapters, it just keeps coming back over and over again to the grace of God. The grace of God. The grace of God. Again, Jacob's not a good man, not a godly man, not even really a nice man, but yet God keeps his promises and God uses him and God saved him. Even today, we talk about, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not Joseph. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, I am the God of grace. It's not about you. It's about me. And that was true for Jacob, and it's true for, for you and I. And I think that's a... Do I understand it all? No. But I love it all. I love what he did for Jacob because that's what he did for, for me. Next week, we'll turn and finish up Genesis 47. And we're going to talk a little bit about poverty and prosperity. Let's pray. Father.